more you read them, the more you study them, to kind of see what they're really saying, see the themes, see the purpose. Um, and I think that's something good to look for when we study a letter like this, is to try to see how does this all fit together, and what is Peter really saying? You know, why did he write this? And what are we supposed to really get out of this uh, for our lives? There are many doubts about um, introductory matters. I don't do much with introductory matters anyway, but there's lots of question marks and discussion. Uh, by skeptics, there's a lot of question about who wrote this. Um, by those who believe what this says, that shouldn't be a big question mark, judging from the first couple of words, but there are <laughs> doubts about that. Um, and uh, considerable reason to not be sure who he wrote this to. Uh, perhaps he wrote it to the same people that he wrote First Peter to, which would have been the Christians in the broad area of Asia Minor, Galatia, that, that region, a lot of places where Paul had preached and so forth. Um, and there's some reason to think he might have written the second letter to that same region. We'll see that as we go through the letter, but that's by no means a certainty. He probably wrote it shortly before he died. We would get that from chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 15. And uh, that was probably, you know, in the uh, mid to late 60s, the best we can tell from historical tradition. Um, there, there are some uh, things that you could compare between First and Second Peter, but overall, I think Second Peter is really treating some different subjects and themes than what First Peter is. So I think it's you know very appropriate to study for itself. Actually, there's another book in the Bible that Second Peter probably shares more common thoughts and themes with. Do you know what that book is? Jude. Jude yeah. And of course, then that lends itself to all sorts of questions about who copied whom, and you know all of that. And I don't think it's impossible that a New Testament writer may have, you know, read or studied another writer's book. I mean, Peter talks about some things Paul wrote that obviously he had looked at. But I don't see any reason to assume one copied the other, even if they were influenced by, you know, the things that God inspired the other one to write or whatever. So I'm not really uh, into uh, to that sort of thing. But those are some of the things that... Uh, that might be said by way of introduction. Are there things that you want to talk about uh, by way of introducing Second Peter? More to Jews or Gentiles? That is a wonderful question. But again, that depends on your reading of several things in the book. And there's some more chairs right here too, folding chairs if you want them. Uh, you're welcome to set them up and put them wherever you want. So, uh, Or take those chairs and just do whatever you want to. Pretty informal. Uh, but, but the question of whether or not it's to Jews or Gentiles does affect the interpretation of some of the passages. And I'm not confident about that. You know, I think I would prefer seeing this as written to a mixed group. And that, you know, there's not anything special about Jew or Gentileness that really enters into this. What about 1 Peter? I would probably say a similar thing to that, although 1 Peter 4 3. Uh, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued all this makes me think that he's seeing First Peter as written more to Gentiles. <coughs> also, 
us the first Peter two where you were not a people but now are a people of chosen generation. Good point. So Yeah, but he's quoting the letter to the Jews who were a people. <laughs> I mean they said the same thing to them. Yes. <clears throat> so that is what I was debating whether which which way it went there. And then shortly after that he mentions the Gentiles again, so and what about 114 in First Peter? Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. I mean, those things have made me think that First Peter was more to Gentiles. I mean, I realize it depends on how you read 4.3, but I think the idea is, you know, they're surprised that you quit acting like Gentiles act. You know, you've made a shift. You were carrying out the will of the Gentiles, and suddenly things are different. So, I think First Peter is probably more written to Gentiles. If Second Peter is written to the same group, then that's helpful. That would say it was more written to Gentiles, at least from my reading of those things. It's two twelve. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Is it Gentiles among Gentiles, or is it Jews among Gentiles? Well, you see, I think in a verse like that, he's using Gentiles to mean non-Christians. That's a big problem, too, in all of this. And maybe, that now that maybe should color our interpretation of 4.3. Because there are several passages in the New Testament that will use Gentiles to mean non-Christians. We are now Christians and Gentiles, not Jews and Gentiles. So you always have that debate in a passage in the New Testament epistles, especially. Is he using Gentiles in, in distinction with Jews or in distinction with Christians? Um, I would suggest there are several of those, and I don't remember where they all are, but one passage that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 5, um, where he's dealing with a man living with his father's wife. I can get that passage. And, uh, you know, doesn't that even exist among the Gentiles? Well, what he means is among the non-Christians. Um, there are some others uh, like that. So, uh, maybe we should say that you know it's impossible to be absolutely conclusive about that. Anybody got other thoughts about that? Yeah, I think you're right, though. I think in the end it's not going to matter. I mean, it, it may give us a little bit more detail or something, but ultimately in the end it's not going to matter. I agree. I mean, there's nothing that I've found in Second Peter that makes, that, that really, it changes much, you know, whether or not they're Jews or Gentiles. Now, there's a couple of passages that if you thought it was being written, it was, it, that you could interpret it as referring to Jew Gentile. We'll look at one of those just in a second. But I don't, so. Other questions or comments on all this or on anything introduction? Alright, very good. Would somebody read then the first two verses of Second Peter? Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Jesus our Lord. Okay. This is the only book in the New Testament that begins with a double name. Simon, or some of the texts say Simeon, Peter. Um, why would he start with two names? 
We often do that. I'll introduce myself sometimes as Gary Fisher. Is that why he does Simon Peter? To show that he's the apostle or something like that, maybe? Well, it might identify him more carefully. Obviously, there's a ton of Simons in the New Testament. Close to a dozen. Don't think that's the only thing, though. What's Peter's last name? What was Peter? Barjona was his last name, son of Jonah, yeah. Well, what's Peter? That was the name Jesus gave him. Jesus gave him that name. What does Peter mean? It means rock. It means rock in English. What's Peter in Aramaic? Cephas. Cephas. So that all means the same thing. You know, Cephas is the Aramaic of which Peter is the Greek, of which rock is the English. This is Simon Rock. Now, why did Jesus give him that name? His, he confessed that Jesus was Christ and, uh, and upon that rock Jesus was saying he built his church. Wasn't though when Jesus gave him the name, he'd given him the name earlier, right? Back in John 1. So why did Jesus give him that name? There was another Simon and he was trying to figure out how to do <laughs> <laughs> We sometimes call somebody Rocky, I guess, but... Uh, I didn't know that it told exactly why he didn't. It doesn't, but I think we can figure that. <laughs> you know, well, look at it this way. Do names matter in the Bible? I mean, are there other names that were changed in the Bible? Yeah. Can you think of some? Israel. Yeah, Paul, Saul, uh, but that may not have been a Saul, Paul, that may not have been a change other than more like a Jewish or Greek but Jacob Israel, that was significant, and some attention was drawn to that. Remember some others? Abraham. Abram and Abraham, yeah. And Sarai and Sarah. Wasn't Solomon like Jedediah or something? Yeah, he did have another name. I'm not sure if that was a name change, but I, you know, in the other name changes, there seems to be some special significance, and a lot of times when a name was given like to a baby, you know, there's some significance pointed out about what the names mean. For us, how many of you know what your name means? So, I don't. I'm just raising my hand. So, you want to do it. Uh, so, about, a, about uh, you know, 30% of us, you know, most of us don't. Do you really care? You know, that's just not a very American thing. You know, when I, I don't know what my kids' names mean. That's not why I name my kids that. I name my kids X. I like the, the sound of the name. I mean, just, you know, people I knew that had the name or whatever. Uh, but, but for people in the Bible times, names meant a whole lot more. They give the name by its meaning. So when Jesus says, you're Cephas, you're Peter, you're a rock, my thinking is that Jesus meant something by that, and I think it was talking about what Jesus was going to do for Peter. He was going to make him a rock. When you look at uh, Simon in the Gospels, would you say that a rock is the best description of him? Yeah, because when he walked in water, his sign climbed <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that explanation. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't top that. But what do you think? Was he really? What do you think of when you think of a rock? Stable, stable, firm, constant. Was he that? But 
when you look at him in, say, Acts and, and later on, while he had momentary lapses, especially Galatians 2, I think you see him being much stronger. He was, you know, part of the foundation. You know, he was the one that opened the door. So that was really, you know, encouraging. And uh, come on in. Hey, guys. Um, we're in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I think Peter, the rock, is sort of the transformation that Jesus is going to give in the character and behavior of Simon. And so I think he refers to his double name maybe to just symbolize the change that, that Jesus made him in him. He went from being a Simon to a Peter, to a rock. I would even suggest that you give a little bit of thought to Simon's background in terms of the name. The name Simon comes from what Old Testament character? Simeon. Simeon. And what's noteworthy about Simeon? He went in prison when his his brothers had to go back to bring him. That's one thing. What else is noteworthy about Simeon? Yes, and that was not a very stable, solid thing for him to do. So even the background of a Simeon may indicate sort of the character of Simon that Jesus turned into a Peter. At any rate, he's Simon Peter, and he identifies himself in two ways. What was he? Uh, on what he did, Genesis 34. Bond servant, apostle. Yeah. Now to say he's a bond servant is to really emphasize what about him. Servitude. Yeah, he's a servant. You know, he belongs to the Lord, and he's to he's giving himself to the Lord. Um, to say he's an apostle emphasizes what aspect of his character. Chosen? He was chosen, but apostle goes one step beyond being chosen. Sent. He was sent as sort of a representative for God. An apostle has sort of a commission from the Lord, therefore has authority to speak in the name of the Lord. So a bondservant tells me he's a slave of the Lord, he belongs to the Lord, but apostle says that he's got the right to speak for Jesus Christ. He's his representative, and therefore what he says is authoritative. And then he addresses this to who? Yeah, of the same kind or the same value as ours. Now there's a good question. Who's the ours? The apostles. That's what I think. I think he's talking about these who have received the same faith as the apostles. They weren't eyewitnesses, but they have the same faith. They have the same privileges as the eyewitnesses. You know, there have always been uh, those who tried to um, sort of keep the privileges of Christ for some elite privileged few. There were the Gnostics and even those before the Gnostics that thought and taught that they had a a special connection with the Lord. 
And I think Peter's saying, you guys have received a faith just as valuable as what ours is. In Christ, there's not big Christians and little Christians, or special Christians and ordinary Christians. We all have the same faith. That's what I think he's saying. Now, there would be those who would say that you Gentiles have received the same faith as we Jews. That would be another possible interpretation. But I think it's a little stronger to take this as, you know, ordinary Christians and the apostles. Do you have some thoughts on that? On anything we've said so far? Yeah, I would think later because he says in, in the last few verses of this chapter that so we were eyewitnesses of his glory. So, I mean, the eyewitness account of them being, you know, the apostles of being in his presence, you know, is that would give <coughs> a little bit more credibility or weight to the fact that us being apostles. Exactly. Good point. That's one of the things that I thought about that, you know, he seems to use the we starting in verse 16 that way. Good point. What, what would indicate somebody that, well, I guess to us, if this is, who is this being written to? Yeah. Was it written to Gentiles, or do we know that? Or yeah, we talked about, about that, and we're okay. not sure about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know if we can tell for sure. We discussed whether First Peter was written to Gentiles or not, and some of us think so and some of us don't. I, I think it was. Uh, but there's some debatable passages that lead us in that direction. And then was Second Peter written to the same people as First Peter? I think maybe so, but I can't be sure about that. So when it's all said and done, I'm not sure anybody can prove that very strongly. That obviously would make a difference. If you proved it was written to Jews, then the interpretation that you Jews have received this, the same faith as we Jews wouldn't work. Uh, but... Is the, is the reason that a lot of apostles, when they were writing letters, that they introduced themselves as apostles, is that more to establish their authority for writing these things? I think so. I mean, I think that sort of gives the credentials that means their message is from God and needs to be heard. Now, he says they received a faith of the same value as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ which also is kind of a debatable thing, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. What is that, what is he using righteousness to mean? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. <laughs> Let me throw out a couple possibilities. Literally, by or in the righteousness. Yes. Not that it makes a big difference, but. Yeah, and that's, yeah, it's a question of how to translate that preposition, and I think by the righteousness is probably just as well. But, but um, could it mean just on the basis of God's fairness and righteousness that God gives to each the same quality and value of faith? That's what some people think. What seems a little bit stronger to me, but I'm not sure, is that we're using righteousness in the way Paul would have, say, in the book of Romans. That our faith comes by God making us right, by his uh, plan and his activity of making us innocent before him by his forgiveness. That's the way Paul would use righteousness in Romans or Galatians. And maybe he's saying that this... This faith that we've received comes through 
the Savior's making us righteous before Him. I don't know, what do you think? Anybody want to disagree or offer a thought? Well, that's kind of what I thought. Where is that number again? Well, all over Romans. <laughs> Romans 3, for example. What verse is there? Oh, right. Oh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> 21 and following. Okay. Uh, Chapter 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. You know, I think the idea is we've been justified, we've been declared not guilty. I mean, God, God gave us Christ in the gospel, and through that gospel we're declared righteous or not guilty, justified. Exactly. It's kind of a complicated concept, yeah. even in Romans. Um, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does he mean by the righteousness of our God, stop, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, saying like the Father and Jesus, or does he mean the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? In which case, he'd be calling Jesus Christ not only Savior, but also God. Have you thought about that? This is a little too deep. I thought it was going to be more shallow. Well, it is. <laughs> I'm asking questions, I'm not answering them deeply. But that's an important question, or at least a, you know, an interesting question in that. Yes. <laughs> The, the grammar, from what I understand, fits the New American Standard punctuation. It's the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can argue the other way, but apparently the strong feeling of the grammarians is that it's, it is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why people might argue against that is some people have a hard time with Jesus being called God in the Bible. Granted, that's not every passage, but can you think of some passages that do call Jesus God? Isaiah, you might call him. Yeah, Isaiah 9-6. New Testament passages? Thomas Thomas, John 20-28, my Lord and my God. John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can you come up with a couple more? When Jesus says, it quotes the I am thing. Okay, that's a way of showing he's God. But verses that specifically call him God. Another one just like this one almost. Uh, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Also debatable there in the same way. Also grammatically there in the same way I think it should be that the great God refers to Jesus. There's some other things in Titus that lend themselves to seeing that same thing. And also there's a passage in Romans 9, Romans 9, 5, um, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who's over all God blessed forever. Amen. Almost all those passages you're going to debate about from some who don't want to see Jesus as God, but I think in all those passages it is legitimately calling Jesus God there's no reason not to. He is. <laughs> so, it, to me, there's not a problem with seeing it that way. 
But I think that is what he's saying here. The righteousness comes from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 110, the Lord said, my Lord. Yes. Yeah. And, and just tons of other passages, plenty of passages that are of Jehovah in the Old Testament applied to Jesus in the New Testament. You know, worship being offered to Jesus, and, you know, Jesus said only God can be worshipped, and so forth. Well, I don't think we'll spend equal amounts of time on all the verses, but do you have any more questions or comments on verse 1? I verse 2, he offers the typical greetings. You could almost see this being given by even somebody like Paul. Grace and peace. But what does he say different about this grace and peace he's wishing wishing for them? (laughs) So what does that say? Yeah. They've already received grace and peace, but he wants them to have a whole lot more of it. You can never have enough of that. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And how do you get the grace and peace? The knowledge of God. Yes. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This book emphasizes a lot the need for proper knowledge. And here it's the knowledge of God that gives us grace and peace. That's how grace and peace can be multiplied. It does make a difference, our knowledge of the Lord. Now I think that implies both a knowledge of what he says and actually knowing him in terms of having a close relationship with him. You cannot divorce God's grace and peace from knowing what the scriptures say and from coming to know him in a, in a relationship sense. Um, and, and the book of Second Peter is going to talk a lot about knowledge in the sense that there are plenty of people who come along and who teach wrong things that lead people astray from what the scriptures say and lead people astray from this relationship that they ought to have with the Lord. So it's important to establish in the beginning that the grace and peace are multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Comments and questions? That's in verse 2, God and Jesus, that that there would be referring to I think so. The Father and Son. I think so. Yeah, it's a different construction. Seems like someone might make a case from that then. They do a little bit. The first verse would then be saying the same thing. They do a little bit. But it isn't written the same way. Right. So. What would you say of God and of Jesus our Lord? Like clarify Jesus, Lord, and then. That's a good question. Um. Maybe because there is emphasis on the lordship and authority of Jesus throughout the book. There are those who were insubordinate who didn't want to submit themselves to Jesus as Lord. So maybe it's appropriate to emphasize this here in the very beginning. It's the knowledge of Jesus, our Lord, not just Jesus as Savior or something like that. When it says uh, Jesus our Lord, the Lord there, is that the idea of a deity or is it more the idea of what would be in the Hebrew Adonai, the idea of 
just master and over us. Yeah, there isn't a corresponding term to Jehovah in the New Testament. Although when those passages that use Jehovah in the Old Testament are translated in the New Testament, it's you, Lord is used. But it is normally the word Lord means master, ruler, or occasionally even sir. Uh, but here I think in the idea of the ruler. He's, he's the one who's the Lord over things. It's cool to see how in the first two verses Jesus is called God, Savior, and Yes. God, Savior, Lord, Jesus, and Christ. Yeah. You could do a lot with just looking at those terms and seeing all the different things you can see about Jesus just from those five words that describe him. Now, are we okay being up here? There are a few more people that came than I thought would, but are, is everybody situated in a way you're comfortable with by being up here studying? We're still closer together than we'd be downstairs. So, okay. If it gets too warm or whatever, we can open the windows or turn on the fan or whatever you need. So. And freeze Debbie. I think we can load Debbie up with five more blankets if we need to. So, All right. Um, I guess uh, let's go do three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very um, and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the that is in the world because of sinful desire. I actually thought these two verses were some of the harder verses in here for me to just really feel like I understood how they all fit together. Uh, so I don't know. I may not do as well with these verses. But but clearly this is kind of starting him out in the direction he wants to go. And he emphasizes that God in his divine power has given us everything. Now, the word everything has kind of a prominent position in the sentence. I think that's the point. God gave us everything. He gave us everything by his power. So he had the ability to give us everything that he chose to give us. He gave us full provision. Now, he gave us everything in what sense? Now, we need to live and serve him. Yes. Here, life and godliness, I think we're talking about our spiritual life and our devotion and respect for God. So he's saying he gave us everything um, for our spiritual growth and maturity. Now, the truth is, God gave us everything for everything. But here, the point he's trying to make is, God has provided us with everything we need for spiritual growth. And if he has, then we've got a responsibility to grow spiritually, to, to, to have good spiritual life and godliness. In fact, the everything in verse 3 corresponds to the all in verse 5. Since God's given us everything, we ought to apply all diligence. We ought to correspond to what he's given. Um, but... But how is it that he's given all things pertaining to life and godliness to us? In what way do we receive uh, those provisions? The knowledge of him. Yeah. It, 
comes by knowing Christ, who is the source of all spiritual power and growth. We don't get those provisions to help us grow and mature in Christ outside of knowing Him. Again, knowing what the text says about Him and knowing Him in the sense of having a relationship with Him. The knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Um, You know, He has done everything we need. He's called us. He's used His own glory and excellence to do that. There's not any excuse for not living a godly life because God has done all of this. You know, he's, he's powerfully given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's called us. In fact, in verse 4, by these, perhaps by his glory and excellence, he's granted to us his precious and, mag- and magnificent promises. So we've got everything. We've got his power. We've got everything pertaining to life and godliness. We've got his call. We've got his precious and magnificent promises. And through these, we are enabled to become partakers of the divine nature. Now, that's pretty incredible. Um, Any way you cut that, that's an incredible thing to say. Partakers of the divine nature? How can we be partakers of God's nature? Yeah, but does that really change our nature? What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? What is the divine nature anyway? Who we're made in the image of. Yeah? But we kind of fell from that, didn't we? Mortality. Yeah? You're escaping the corruption. Deity, maybe? Well, do we become deity? I'm not even sure we become immortal, exactly. Do you think it comes back to that that position <coughs> that man had before the fall, that position of fellowship, of oneness? Yeah, that makes sense to me, the idea of regaining the image of God, of coming back to that, um, the, the sharing we had with God in that. Is there a word that describes the distinct nature of God in the Bible? Um, Yeah, that's what I think. Holy. God's nature is many things, but it's especially a holy nature. And I think holiness is the part of God that we share in. We become like God morally and ethically, spiritually. We share in His holiness. And I think he does help to define that, saying, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Because if you uh, succumb to the world's lustful corruption, then, then you don't partake of that nature. You know, because that nature involves purity and righteousness and a holy life. You've got, to, you've got to get away from the lustful corruption of the world to be able to share in God's pure, holy, righteous nature. But what he's saying, it seems to me, then, is that through his power, he's given us everything that we need, he's called us, he's given us his promises, so that we can actually be holy and righteous and pure, having escaped lustful corruption that's in the world. Now, if God's done all that for us, what would the logical conclusion be? Be holy as I'm holy. Exactly. 
that's from First Peter 1. We ought to live this way. We ought to be holy, righteous, God-like people. He's given us everything that we need to be godly, to be righteous, to be pure. Everything by His divine power. And so we've got a responsibility to live up to that calling. I think that's sort of the theme of Second Peter. Now, there's some sub-themes that are closely tied to that, but I think when it's all said and done, Second Peter is trying to get us to live pure, holy, righteous lives. And, and look at the very end of the book, because he really comes back to that. In 3.14, well, 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And then in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. It seems to me that, that we start and end with the idea of our responsibility to be holy, pure, spotless people. Uh, and in, in chapter 1, because God's done so much for us to enable us to be that way. That's the main things I'm getting out of verses 3 and 4, but I feel like I have not really, uh, you know, gotten to the bottom of, what, of everything he's saying in those verses. So, what comments and questions do you have? These are powerful verses, because I see in both 2 and 3, both all these things coming from the knowledge of our Lord. And saying that we have everything we need. And I think you hit that really hard, but I think it's even more important to... I know when I talk to people, they always say, well, it's too hard. I can't do it. These things are just too hard for me. You've been given everything you need. You can't say that you don't have the power. You've got God. You've got, you've got everything. And these, pers- these verses point out and saying that everything that you need has been provided for you. You have, like you said, no excuses. Exactly. Some people think it's not, not saying that's not true. I know I've seen that. I've also seen uh, that some people think they can do it by themselves. Think, oh, I'll clean up my life, and then I'll come to God, and you know things will be all right. He'll he'll be able to accept me. Uh, you know, he can't accept me as I am, so I have to fix a few things. And don't don't just submit to God and let Him give us what we need. Give us the hope and the grace and, and the peace that we need to be able to serve Him. We can't serve Him without submitting to Him. Good point. Everything we have here, we have been given. You know, he uses granted and granted. You know, so these are not self-achievements. Now, he's going to talk about our part starting in verse 5. There's effort we have to put into this, but, but, but fundamentally, the, the blessing to escape the world's corruption and become partakers of the divine nature is God's gift to us. Good point. Uh, I like what what Michael said in saying that and if you look at Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me not my own strength but through Christ that's where our strength comes and to me when you try to say that uh, God can't accept me as I am I have to fix my life up to me that tells me you doubt God's power to forgive you and accept you as you are because you're saying well God can't do it so I have to make myself better Mm hmm and there's two problems wrong with that. First of all, you're doubting God, and second of all, you have too much confidence in yourself. Yeah. 
unstable, you know, when you look at Peter, I mean, like you said, I mean, early in his life, he was unstable, but, you know, God is always the rock, he's, throughout the Bible, is called the rock, something stable, something that we can cling to, and when our world is so unstable, and sometimes we're coming unglued, and we're unstable, and we just don't know, you know, we've forgotten about the rock, you know, and I think that the thing is, hopefully that we can always cling to that stability in the Lord. And number two, the beginning is not the end. God knew what Peter would become. God looks at not just what he sees in the beginning, but what is the end. And so, you know, Revelation, when he talks about I'll give you a new name, those things they may have been going through, you know, just like Jacob, you know, he'd been wrestling with God and finally he says, you have found favor. You know, he, all he could do was cling, he was broken gave him a new name. So we just we just cling and hang in there and we'll finally maybe understand the meaning of our name in Christ. You know, what life is really means by clinging to the rock. Excellent thought. That's exactly right. It makes you wonder what the Lord sees in us, <laughs> you know, before we could ever even see it. Very good point. Other thoughts? Right. Look at the next step in this. You know, three and four are more what God's given. Now, what we must supply, five through eleven. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, he's, he ties this strongly in verse 5. For this very reason also. That is, because God has put within your reach the means of participating in his nature. He provides the power to life and godliness. He's given us everything we need. Because of that, because of what he's done, then what should we do? Yeah, with what um, 
attitude. Diligence. You know, his blessings to us ought to cause diligence in our spiritual growth. Now, diligence means what? Yes. Utmost effort. This is not something we can treat lightly. This is not something we just sort of dabble in. It requires the whole commitment of body, soul, and spirit. And he doesn't just say applying diligence. Applying all diligence. So he's saying, you've got to really go all out. Work hard. Be intense in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Now faith is the starting point. It's kind of the seedbed for all the other Christian character traits. He starts out with faith. Obviously, they're Christians, so they've got to have faith, but their growth is going to depend upon their faith and trust in the Lord. And I don't know, I'm not sure if there's significance to the order of these or not. In some cases, maybe. But all of these are qualities we must have. So think about the, the way we are to add these things. By the way, the, the verb supply seems to indicate the idea of a, a, a supplying abundantly. And it's the same word that's going to be used in um, verse 11 for the, abundant, for the entrance into the kingdom of God that will be abundantly supplied to us. So if we want God to uh, supply us abundantly with the entrance, then we need to give an abundant supply of these qualities. So in your faith supply moral excellence would be a good way to, to uh, describe moral excellence. Purity. Integrity. Something like that. Virtue. In your moral excellence knowledge. How many times are you going to talk about knowledge in these uh, first few verses? You know, we've, we've got it in two, we've got it in three, we've got it in five, we've got it in six, we've got it in eight. It all comes from, from knowing. And and it starts with knowledge and, and we must increase in our knowledge. We've got to continue to, to really deepen our understanding of the Lord. And then that leads to self-control. Uh, you can't do any of this if you don't control yourself. You don't have uh, uh, the ability to, to dominate your impulses and your desires and your feelings to do what's right. And, and, and that self-control is not a sporadic thing. It's not just a short burst. It needs to continue. And so continuation in self-control leads to perseverance. You know, you keep going, you endure. And that leads to godliness. Probably one of the harder words to define here, and probably one of the ones we misdefine the most. Um, what does godliness mean? Likeness. It's what we often say, but it's really not. <laughs> That's a little bit closer. Really, the the translator, you know, the, the people I've looked at would say like respect for God and a desire to please God. Not so much being like God, but giving deference and respect, reverence to God, and uh, seeking to please Him and honor Him. Uh, I think that's more the idea of of that term. Um, and then that leads to brotherly kindness, which is the family love that should characterize Christians with each other, and that leads to leads to love, which is not something we demonstrate just toward each other, but 
in love, we, we care about all people. So those are the qualities that we need to be applying all diligence to grow in. What are your comments and thoughts on all these two verse 7? I think that if you respect God and are aware of Him, you become more godly. So I guess they kind of go hand in hand. I think it's interesting that he starts with faith and ends with love, because that, that sh- I think that shows that faith in God also takes love for God. Yeah, that's a, those are appropriate uh, points on the two ends, isn't it? You know, because everything starts with faith, and the capstone of Christian life is love. Good point. This might have more weight to it if I was old and wise, but I just when I read things like this, there's just so many aspects to it that you just can't see any way that you would accomplish what you need to accomplish if you didn't give your whole life to do it. That religion, faith in God, is something that has to be given our all, or we won't accomplish anything that He desires in us. It takes diligence to grow in all these things, doesn't it? Good point. Other thoughts? The word dietary, or the word uh, supplement made me think of dietary supplements. They really don't do a lot of good unless you take them daily and whatever the need to be. Good point. It has to be a constant thing, persistent thing. Well, he says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Both of those are pretty impressive things. When he says, if these qualities are yours, that's a pretty strong way to say it. Say, if this is a part of your character, not just if you dabble in these things, but if they really belong to you. You know, if you can say that you really possess these things, and they're increasing. This is a growth process. It would be easier if you just sort of got these things in one fell swoop. You know, some crisis and whammo, I have moral excellence and I have godliness and, you know, I have brotherly kindness. But it's not like that. These have to be increasing. I have to keep dedicating myself to this. In one way, maybe it's comforting. You know, because we know we don't have the uh, perfection of these qualities. What God wants us is to have them and keep growing in them. But it provides us with a continual challenge. We've got to keep increasing in these. So not just do you have them, but are you, do you have more of them now than you did? If they are, then you won't be useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of God. It'll, it'll make you useful and fruitful. If you lack these qualities, well, you are blind and have amnesia. You know, you can't see the future. You can't see what you need to be looking for. You're just thinking about the the immediate. And you've forgotten what God's done for you. Because what God's done for us, His purifying our sins, ought to lead us to be so grateful to Him that we grow. If we're not growing in these things, we we don't even really remember all that the Lord has done for us. So, what a a difference. You know, either you're growing in these things, verse 8, and you're not useless nor unfruitful, or you lack these things, 
and you're blind and you've forgotten your purification from your former sins. Comments and questions? Um, about like <clears throat> that big list he gives, I'm talking about like growth. Is it like when you give moral excellence, you'll kind of grow into knowledge and then into self-control and then into uh, perseverance, etc.? Or... <clears throat> I don't think so. I mean, I don't think this is the sort of deal where you need to get one before you start working on the next one. If so, we're in trouble. We'll never get to love. Uh, I, I, I suspect we can probably be working on all of them at the same time. So why do you think you list them like that, I guess? I don't have a good answer to that. Anybody got a good answer to that? Well, you do have to list them some way. <laughs> <laughs> one of them has to be first. It might be the idea, if, he, if he's, he's saying supplement these things, and it might not necessarily be the idea that he's going to, he doesn't really say get this and then get this. He's just saying, I think it's more the idea, if he's, this might be tricky with the translation, but more the idea, start with your, that you have to have faith first, and then you build on all these other things onto it. More than the idea of having one before the other. I wonder, I don't know that. As we're working on one or more of these things, the others will start to be more natural to us. And that as we're trying to do better, they're all linked together. And that as we get one, it'd be hard not to be working on the other. Yeah, I can see the interconnections uh, between them. There may be some point to the order. I mean, some things you can kind of see one flowing into the other. But... It's certainly hard for me to see that that you shouldn't be... Obviously, for example, we ought to be developing in our love, you know, from the very beginning. So it certainly wouldn't mean we wait on working on love until we do the others. I was thinking about if verse 8, if you... These things are yours and, and abound, you will be neither barren or unfruitful. The only reason to have these things is to turn around and use them to, to work, to be fruitful for God. And a lot of people, I, may, I suppose maybe then, but it's pretty obvious today that a lot of people try to use any kind of religion as a self-betterment uh, scheme, you know, or to be good people. And so maybe people like us more will get to better jobs or better positions in society or whatever, but those things um, probably don't last very long because they don't have the right um, end in sight. They want it for themselves and for God. Mm-hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? I think it shows that the whole list is kind of tied together, not just you know, two and two. You can't, how can you have godliness and respect and desire to submit to God if you don't know Him and you don't have knowledge about Him? Um, I don't think he's saying that you can't just um, perfect yourself in one area and let the other ones go back there. And sometimes we try to do that. Sometimes our idea is, well, I'll do really good in this and that'll excuse my lapses in other areas. And we need the complete package. I mean, he does not say in verse 8, if two or three of these qualities are yours and increase it. 
you know, the idea is you need them. And, uh... You're guilty of one part of the wall? Yes. What Peter you said James? James. It was in this room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, only off a couple books, so... So he says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. We're back to that idea again. You know, really work hard at this to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things you will never stumble. I mean, it takes something on our part to confirm our being God's people and not stumble and fall. Uh, these are very difficult passages for those that believe that salvation is a matter only of some eternal decree on God's part and it has nothing to do with us. Uh, it does. Now, verses 3 and 4 show it depends fundamentally on what God gives. But we must apply diligence so that uh, we confirm God's choice of us and so that we don't stumble. And thus, in verse 11, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You know, God will give us um, the, the entrance into the eternal kingdom if, if we give all diligence to grow in these areas. So that's what I see in these verses. Do you have comments or questions to verse 11? Yeah, I think it's interesting in verse 10 where it says, make your calling election sure. The, the Calvinistic idea of election is that you were you were elected, you can't be lost. But he says here, make your calling election sure. Philippians 4, your book, your names are written in the book of life. In Revelation 3, I won't block your name out of the book of life. So Peter's saying, you know, make your calling and election sure. Yeah, it's always interesting in the commentaries when they start going on and on and on trying to explain a passage. You usually figure they're trying to explain their way around it. <laughs> and that's what happens with passages like this in the Calvinistic commentaries. You know, they've got a lot to say about this one because it's, it's a problem for them. And I even, I was interesting. I read uh, one commentator on, I think he's talking about the end of Second Peter 2, saying, you know, when it's all said and done, I don't really have a good explanation. <laughs> you know, that this, this causes me problems and it does give me some reason to question my Calvinism. Well, I need to read Second Peter 3 where it says those who are unlabeled and stable twist, <laughs> yeah. arrest the other scripture, they do their own destruction. Well, exactly. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. You twist here, you got to twist here and twist here. And they... Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But yeah, it's very difficult to explain these passages in the way I look at it. If salvation is only by God's decree and man's response has nothing to do with it, then I don't, verse 10 doesn't have any meaning, it seems to me, in that case. You couldn't do anything to make it sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, by, by Calvinism, it is absolutely secure in the eternal decree of God, and nothing you do would have any effect on that. But that's, I, that, as far as I can see, that's just not biblical. Well, if, they're, if you're automatically saying so can't do anything about it, what's the point of even getting together and doing stuff like this? Uh, they would come up with reasons to do so anyway, but uh, yeah, that is a good question. It's also the other side of that is how many people aren't sure about their salvation and. Post, maybe some of us here 
when it comes down to it, you know, there are things I've done that I'm just not sure about. You know, if, if God would, if God would accept me, you know, is my heart really right with Him? Uh, and I don't know. It, it, we we read that it is. It's work. You know, all these things. Characteristics we're supposed to be striving for, giving all of our efforts toward, uh, and that's I don't know I, I I can't say it's this simple, but that's what that's what helps us to make it sure. Uh, that's a lot of work to do, uh, so it's easy to say that, but that's what makes it sure for us. Yeah, good point. You know, we have more security. For sure, when when we do these things. I mean, you know, when we are all the more diligent and we really add these qualities, then it gives us much more confidence before the Lord. Other comments and thoughts? I'm a person I, like, the fact that He purified you from your sins should make you want to try harder, which is so much the opposite of the idea that God's going to forgive you and you don't have to worry about it and just let him do whatever and you don't try. I agree. <coughs> well, judging from the time, why don't we take a uh, five-minute break? That's amazing how quickly.